Let's dive right into it. Let's do it. Okay. Wait, should I repeat what we just said? Or is that <laughs> a sufficient start? Uh, I think it's did I think we already a good start. start. I, I mean, okay, so honestly, can I can cut, cut this, this to sound like it's we didn't have this little bit right now. You know, uh, I'll just repeat it. I'll just repeat it. You're listening to Steve and Ryan yelling. Two nerds arguing about things that seem to matter. Last time, we had a discussion about climate change where I was trying to convince you of the importance of this problem and how it really needs to be like a number one priority for everyone. I think we aligned a lot more than I expected in terms of just the importance of the problem and how scary it is. But the core difference between our beliefs that I understood was that you are placing a lot of faith in technology and being able to save us. And I think that faith is misplaced. And what that means is you seem to be confident that we can just keep acting the way we're acting and innovating the way we're innovating. And that will come away from this problem relatively unscathed, where I think that if we don't drastically change how we're creating and deploying technology that can help uh, in the war on warming, that we're going to be really screwed. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. Mm-hmm. So I have some thoughts that I'd like to start with, but if this structure gets derailed because we have interesting conversation, that's probably better for everyone involved. So I'm going to I'm gonna dive right into it and feel free to derail me. Great, I will. Before going into why tech is not going to save us, I think it's important to have a really good intuition of how big of a problem this is. There's lots of different targets for where we're trying to get to for CO2 emissions by 2050. But in your head, think of the number 50% below 1990. So we're trying to, whatever the world was producing as a whole in 1990, we're trying to get to 50% below that in the next uh, 30 years. So in the period of 1990 to 2010, global CO2 emissions increased by 67%. So they went in the opposite direction in 20 years, in a magnitude that's higher of what our target is in the next 30 years. Question, how was the target selected? Like, why 1990, 50%? Was that just like they did statistical models and the average of the results of all of them? Was that that is what it would take to make sure that we wouldn't have drastic effects from climate change? That is 50% below 1990 in 2050 is drastic, but not, like, existential destroying the planet and, and, you know, the barrier reefs will be gone and we'll have acidified the ocean and cause mass extinction and probably had some effects on, like, the pretty pronounced effects on and famine, but it won't be like Mad Max. And 2050, like, they had to pick a number that, that, that kind of works to stick in people's heads, but it's based on, like, if we emit this much per year, um, how do we how do we keep it how do we keep the total concentration of CO2 below some level that would correspond with with dangerous warming, which is a in, in this in this case is defined as warning warming of two point degrees two two degrees Celsius below pre industrial levels. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. I don't disagree with that. That seems yeah. that seems like a good target and it seems like the things that they were taking into account 
were legitimately probably the best possible things to take into account, and they were looking at the Earth as uh, as a system that if it got changed and ways that we don't understand, it could be reversible. So with all of those risks in mind, this is a target that makes sense. Yeah, and, and to be clear, there are a lot of people that think that that target is not safe enough um, because there's lots of concern about feedback loops. So an example of a feedback loop would be there's a bunch of methane gas trapped under permafrost. And if you thaw that permafrost, you let out a ton of methane, which is a super potent uh, greenhouse gas. And so if you get below a certain point of warming, you're guaranteed to get runaway warming after that. And so there are a lot of people that think even two degrees Celsius is not conservative enough. So so if you think 50% by 2050 in your mind as the target, think that's like, that's not like over conservative. That doesn't have like a margin of error. That's like a, a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty risky goal in and of itself. Question. Do you feel like humans getting to a certain population on Earth, no matter how they conduct themselves, like let's say once we get to 25 billion people, inevitably we're going to have an impact on the Earth. And it seems like if it was already in this fragile state where a change of just two degrees of the average surface temperature was going to set off positive feedback loops and chain reactions that would set the whole thing amiss and and make, you know, whatever percentage of species go extinct, then... I mean, not to say that that undervalues the fact that we really have done a lot to accelerate that process. Um, maybe there's an element of inevitability, even if it has come sooner as a result of our inability to do something about it. So to say that back to you, because the Earth is fragile and because we're such a powerful force on the Earth, it's, it is, it almost seems inevitable that, that, we would grow in a way that's not sustainable and where we destroy the earth. Yeah, like, would you say that there is a top, like, there, there, there should be a number that comes from the same people that created that number for 50% 1990 levels for the total largest population the earth can sustain? Um, I don't think there should be a number. I think, uh, I think this is a bit of a detour we're taking here. Sorry, you're but right. Yes, you can you can imagine that like if you have too many people living in some way, it would inevitably destroy the planet. And I do want to I do kind of want to that's another thing that should make you really f- afraid. So we need to get below we we need to say negative 50% um from 1990 to 2050. From 1990 to 2010, we went positive 67%. So we are not trending in a in a good direction, okay? And then if you think about a driving force for that, you know, you might get hopeful about the fact that developed countries are deploying clean technologies. And so a way, a proxy for how effective clean technologies are at making a sustainable way of life is GDP per capita. So, so there, the GDP per capita in developed countries ranges from, uh, sorry, not GDP per capita, sorry, uh, CO2 emissions per capita. 
So that ranges from the U.S. and Canada, which are 16 and 15, to a more progressive country like Germany. So that is what... So if you're a human... Well, you had a little audio problem there. Ryan, hello? Hey, yes, I... I tripped on my headphone cord and unplugged it, so it was super awkward. I'm glad no one was around. Anyways, so so you can use GDP per capita as as an example of what a human living in a society like that emits in their life. And so you have a range from eight, which let's say like that's an example of a really sustainable nation, which is Germany, up to fifteen, sixteen, which is an example of Canada or America, which is kind of like a very realistic target for the rest of the world to be aiming for. Global per capita emissions are at five. So if you have the, a, a lot of the world that are racing towards this higher standard of living, and this higher standard of living comes with a GDP, or sorry, a CO2 per capita emissions of, of around 15, somewhere between 10 and 15, then you would expect um, you would expect emissions in the world to only climb, not only as we grow our population, but as all these people in developing countries develop their economies further and further, and their quality of life approaches that of the developed world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess there's a question about ethics here, like the amount of ethical harm that came to people in the Middle Ages because they didn't have the ability to harness energy the way that we do um, is untold. And and it's kind of an interesting question as to whether we would um, do the math and say we should give them coal-powered power plants in the medieval era and alleviate a ton of pain and suffering because on the ethical balance that actually makes sense. So, I mean, relating it to what you're talking about now, it seems like we're at this unfortunate place where the best way to reduce um, ethical impact to improve people's living standards is to give them access to energy generating technologies that fuel the rest of innovation and the rest of um, the infrastructure of what it takes to bring people out of poverty. And unfortunately, those are just not clean technologies yet. So it's it's almost like we kind of have to tell the rest of the world, yeah, we got here by 1980 um, doing it in a dirty way, but you cannot. And not because mm, we don't care about you ethically, but because, you know, you yeah, you have to pay the ethical ethical price because... Yeah, you... You have to, you and your people have to stay poor and continue to struggle in existence. And you have to not achieve our standard of living, even though we're still going to live in a way where we're emitting more per you. So it's not like, it's not like we're going to come down too much, nope. but we're just not going to let you increase that much. Until, uh, the ways that gets you energy are clean. And you just wait. Yeah. We're working on that. It might come in 2050. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and you can see why that that conversation would never happen. <laughs> these are, <laughs> like these are sovereign nations, and yeah. so and so when you're when you're electing a leader, um, no one's going to vote for the guy that says, "Hey, um, America told us that we can't get as rich as them and live as 
as dirtily as they do because it, it will make life harder for Americans. So sorry, guys, but elect me, and I promise that your life will not get better. So, so apart from the ethics, we can just say practically, because the global per capita emissions are below the standards of the developed world, take it as a given that every country who's below that, that, that standard in the developed world will be racing towards that level of emissions. Definitely. That's the current scenario. So, so not only have we not decreased emissions in the past 20 years, but we should also expect emissions in the world to increase further as the rest of the world that's developing races up to our level. And that's assuming no population growth. But, of course, there's going to be population growth, too. And so even ju- even if, if all emission, like if emissions per capita stayed the same across all populations, we would still be growing at the rate of population growth. Yeah, yeah, okay, great. You so did an excellent summary stating <laughs> how shitty the, the, the position is we find yeah. ourselves in, yeah. Yeah, and so the only hope, the only hope is to get per capita emissions in the developed world super, super low. And so if, if CO2, so if per capita emissions today are at five, then, and, and that, that's today, so we need, we need to get 50% below 1990 levels. It's, it's probably we need to get that number down to 2.5. So, so if, if our number is 2.2, 2.5 metric tons of CO2 equivalent per capita, that means that this, that Canada and the U.S. need to go from 15, 16 down to 2.5, which is a massive drop. And Germany needs to go from 8 to 2.5, which is a massive drop. I think something that would be really helpful here for me just picturing this is, like, what is a lifestyle lived that is still, um, I don't want to say luxurious, but that is still desirable, that is in those lower ranges for people that currently exist at our standard of living. So, like, Elon, for example, has done an awesome job of taking what used to sound like a wimpy thing, the electric car, and now it's the thing that everybody wants and every big automaker is moving towards electric cars, you know, also with self-driving, which makes them kind of sexier. But he's done a good job of making the better method sexy and i it would just be pretty cool i think if there was a better conception of what a sexy reduced personal carbon emission lifestyle would look like and if people personally are engaging in that in the developed world then ideally this kind of lead by example thing uh can can scale and it becomes like a a country thing it becomes something that other countries look at and say that's what we want too Okay, yeah, but think about how hard that is. Huh? So, so, so even with Elon making cars sexy, you know, what's what's electric vehicle adoption in North America? Maybe one in every a thousand new cars sold. I, I I actually don't know the number, but I think you you know as well as I do that when you see a Tesla, you still turn your head and like, oh wow, cool, a Tesla. Yeah, and so. It's not it's not widely adopted. And well, I mean, to be fair, there are hybrids, and there's the Chevy Volts. Those have been electric for a while, and they just don't turn heads as much as Elon's methods. Okay, but are are the majority are is I I, I don't you're believe, still right. You're still right. Yeah, not that, a huge that adoption. new car sold. It's still the vast majority are are internal combustions, and that that's something 
that people have discretion over what they buy, that changes their CO2 emissions. Also think that there are a lot of CO2 emissions that are kind of hidden in our system. So every time you send a tanker, a freight ship from China to Canada, carrying a bunch of whatever they're making, it's burning diesel the entire way. And so consumers aren't going to, Consumers aren't going to have an impact on that. Every time you heat your house, you're burning natural gas. Every time you use electricity, depending on what country you're in, you're burning coal. And so, like, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to imagine people buying an electric vehicle than it is imagining people not having electricity or not heating their house. I mean, I guess that's assuming that that's how extreme it would have to be, like literally not heating your house versus like heating a couple of rooms in your house and leaving the rest of it cold and you just wear like indoor jackets or something. I don't know. Okay, but think about the magnitude that we have to drop. So U.S. has to go from 15 tons per person down to 2.5. That's a... That's... They need to get their their emissions to what is that twenty percent of where they're at today, and 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 if you think about all the ways you use energy in a day, like going from twenty percent where you're where you're at today, that's that's a huge change. That's not just like you know taking the bus every now and again. That is that is an, a humongous lifestyle change. I'm not saying it's impossible, but let's just appreciate the scope of the problem here and appreciate that. There are easy things for us to do, which is like, um, you know, eat less meat. Uh, um, if we are, we can afford to buy an electric vehicle, but that our entire economic system is built on the consumption of energy, and the vast majority of this energy comes from fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's funny how the conversation has like. If you were to see, if you had somebody sit us down and you said who was going to be pitching on putting an infographic out on how to best live a life that's <laughs> closer to two tons uh, per person per year, um, you know, you'd think that you'd be the one who'd be behind that. I, I'm kind of surprised that you're, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not not behind. I, I just think it's super hard. Like how how quickly do you think people to change will personally change their lifestyles? in response to this problem. I'm you're making my point at the at the bigger level here because I that's that is my point. I don't think people yeah, no, are going to change. I, I, I'm making the yeah, so I'm making the point of how afraid we should be about this and really technology is our only hope. Because we can't do this without technology. Like the, if you're trying to get your 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 personal emissions to 20% of where they're at today, and a lot of those missions come from things that are out of sight, out of mind for you. Really, the problem is, the, the, the way that we solve this problem is inventing good enough technology and getting it deployed quickly enough that we've just decarbonized the systems so that individuals don't have to change their behavior too much to, to reduce their emissions. Absolutely. I, it's just tough to rely on those technologies. We're literally arguing each other's points. It's so funny. Um, yeah. It's tough to rely on those technologies to come and save us 
out of the blue, right? Like there are things that have to be kind of like in place already that we anticipate are coming. Like we have an idea about how to use sulfur in the atmosphere to do geoengineering, even if it's maybe not the best idea, but maybe kind of there's some merit. Um, you know, we have ideas about what it would be like to do nuclear fusion. It's at least in the purview of possibility. Um, uh, but it's funny to think about like startups explore niche spaces everywhere. Like if you look at the portfolio of a typical VC venture capitalist, there are startups that are just the most niche operations within people's lives. And it could be that what, what we're kind of talking about here is lifestyle innovation. It's like startups that are technology that allow you to not feel like you're uncomfortable living at a, at a highly reduced version of your energy consumption compared to what you did, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, I don't know if that has any merit, but that seems like the kind of innovation that needs to happen that isn't just like, let's figure out better ways to get energy or let's um, geoengineer the planet. So I, th I think you're wrong. So like the world's, the, the single biggest source of emissions in the world is for the production of electricity. And the way that you can reduce those emissions is either by convincing people not to use electricity, which, like, I don't see how you design around that. Like, you can you can get better efficiency, you can change people's habits, but electricity, electricity is energy. We need energy to make stuff move, to make stuff transform. Yeah, but and our entire clear, economy is based on electricity. Moving. It's not zero electricity, it's just much less. Okay, but, like... 20% of what we use today? Like yeah, that, fine. That's I'll still power huge... my computer and my phone and my 3D printer, even if, like, my furnace and I take, like, half the time on my hot showers. Okay, but then, you know, no lights, like, all the all the manufactured goods that you use, like, the, the, all the, you'd have to reduce the electricity that's put into there. Like, yeah, unless, right. unless you... Unless you reduce the amount of energy the global system needs by like 80%, and just energy as in the amount of energy it takes to turn product, you know, raw materials A into product B, and then to move product B to the consumer, then what you have to do is change it so that energy is clean. AKA starting a battery technology company. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. You know, creating solar energy. Okay. And so, you know, if we have, if we, if, if all of the coal in the world was replaced by solar and wind, then this would be a lot easier. And well, we don't have a lot of solar and wind. Like it, in the States, um, solar provides something like, well, I had it up, but you know, it's, we need to basically decarbonize all our energy systems. And energy systems, let's say, that's the food we eat, yeah. the way we move, yeah. and the way we produce energy for everything we do, like all the economic activity we do. And let's look at some of the kind of marquee technologies that are going to save us, solar and wind. Well, okay, in the U.S., solar provides around 4% of U.S.'s total energy consumption. And for it to provide the vast majority of energy consumption, you would have to be assuming that solar is kind of going through this exponential adoption. But it's not true for every technology that it improves exponentially. And you can know 
you, you can you can rather think that you know it's easier to get a small amount of clean technology on the grid or into your life than it is to get a big amount. Like there's kind of like this low hanging fruit thing. So solar is a great example. You can you can you can put a bunch of solar panels on your grid, but you hit some point where it it quickly um, you get diminishing returns. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting like a ton of notifications here. Yeah, but so you can you hit a point where you know you have a bunch of solar and it's all producing electricity at the same time, and so the price of electricity in that point goes to zero or, or, or low enough that it doesn't justify installing any other solar projects. And that number, depending on the market you're in, is something like 9%. Like in Texas, it's like 9%. So we would have to, for, for us to believe in technology decarbonizing our system in, the, in basically the way things are currently going, you would need solar to be adopted following this exponential curve. But you know from the system that it's actually – probably the quickest adoption would be in the early stages and it's going to get harder and harder to integrate. Yeah. So there's no reason to expect exponential adoption here. And then another important example is, or another important thing to understand is the capital stock of our energy systems. It has replacement life or replacement time that's measured on decades. So you build a coal plant to last a few decades and you run it for those few decades, and then the next technology you adopt, it needs to run for for a few decades. So that means you need to have a technology that's mature enough and proven enough that you can get um, someone to finance it. And and project finance comes with really low risk. So so you have very slow iteration cycles on improving these technologies. And the fact that these assets need to have a really long life means it's a lot harder to incorporate new technologies because new technologies need more time to prove themselves out for anyone to deploy them. So is it a little bit more like, um, I, just as maybe a dumb analogy, but I think of my food consumption as being easier to manage when I have a list of things that I'm buying at the grocery store. So like I only go to the grocery store every like two weeks, maybe a week and a half, something like that. Um, and at that moment, if I can just control myself and say, this is what I want in my diet, I'm just going to go in and grab that and come out and then I'll be stuck with it. And that for me actually works pretty well psychologically. Um, it sounds like what you're describing has similar cycles where, you know, you have to make this decision on an investment that's going to take you another 10 years every time. And it's actually maybe in our favor that that's the case, because that means that a lot of thought has to go into it. And the thing that is decided on is the thing that people are stuck with. And so then why shouldn't all of the decisions just be made in the direction of renewables as opposed to, um, you know, CO2 emitters? Well, so, so that's a great question. But then think about what you're, think about what you're implying there. That means that if you're a profit-seeking company in the business of building assets that generate electricity and you're regulated and you have shareholders and the nature of your business is to not take a lot of risk, you are now required, let's call it ethically, to adopt the riskiest technologies that are going to make the biggest difference instead of instead of getting a technology that is proven out 
where you know that you'll, you're going to be able to reliably provide electricity and that you're going to be able to do it in a way that doesn't cause your company to go bankrupt. So that's really hard to get private companies to do because they, that every incentive prevents them from doing that. On top of that, these companies need to depend on financing where people are financing these assets based on assumption about how they're going to operate and how, how, how long they're going to last. And it's hard to get capital assets financed that don't have a proven track record, track record of operation. So yes, it could be, and, and, and this is, you're, you're on the money about what, what, what kind of action we need to take, which is work against all the forces of capitalism and profit maximization to cause people to adopt technology that's better for the world, but worse for their returns and worse for their risk profile. Um, but that's, then that's, that's super, super hard. So when I'm saying we shouldn't have any hope in the current rate of technological improvement, what I mean is taking the system as it is without changing the system, without changing the way technology is developed and deployed, we don't have any hope. So we can't just wait. Uh, we can't just think that things are going to naturally take care of themselves because we live in a system that won't allow technology to improve at the rate it needs to improve to save us. Okay, so let me let me see if I can get this straight. So you and I agree that we have to do something about it because sustainability of the human race is the number one priority. This is an existential risk. And so if you and I were in control of world policy and the governments that were part of the Paris Climate Agreement, and we could make sure that they fulfilled their obligations, and we could even set those obligations, then we would set the regulatory landscape to say all of the companies that are currently producing coal-fired power plants need to switch and start making heavy investments into any kind of renewable that they decide on. But you're, you're saying that's the ideal, but it's impossible to do that because politics is crazy complex and there are misaligned incentives and that's just not going to happen. I mean, Trump is in office. There are a lot of reasons that's not going to happen. And so the last thing that we've got left is our reliance on technology enabling countries that are stubborn to still be able to um, maybe not necessarily meet their goals, but either offset or, or do something to make up for it. So close. What I'm saying is people like you and a lot of people like you Jackals. are assuming <laughs> are assuming that technology will get good enough that it will automatically get adopted in our current system, which means we're assuming that technology will improve at a rate quick enough that in a competitive market driven economy people will choose to adopt this new technology because it, 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 it helps their profit. Um, and what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that is not going to happen. And so if you're depending on technology to save us, which we absolutely need to do, you also need to have huge political upheaval. We have to really change how our economy works. And, and what you've described, which is getting getting all these companies to adopt um, renewable energies is something akin to um, nationalizing every utility, nationalizing every um, 
every yeah every company that's related to electricity making that a government owned company and you can imagine how hard that would be to do not impossible but that's that's the type of changes we need to be considering to save ourselves from climate change uh sorry so i think it may be that you you're saying the political aspect of this goes beyond just the politics of whether we agree on the regulation. It even goes far. It goes as far as our ability to develop and deploy the technologies that are necessary, even if we had a political failure. Yeah. Um, so it's it's the way technology gets adopted and diffuses in our system makes it such that technology will not save us. So that to say it succinctly. Technology will not save us if we don't affect substantial change in how our economic system works. So this isn't something – it is not the case that, that we can live the way we're, we're currently living, do things the way we're currently doing them, have like this competitive market-driven economy, and that technology will get good enough to save us from global warming. That is not the case. We need both – more, we need to both increase the rate of technological um, improvement and completely change how the economics of energy systems work. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, it feels like both of those are places where we just can make progress. Like, it's not like one of them, we have to make a huge sacrifice or something, right? Like, for all of us to go vegetarian, like, that's a sacrifice, but it's like, mm -hmm. I still get to study and I still get to work on a company. Like, the, there's no way that has an actual impact on my work. There are, like, so many low-hanging fruit on the, like, personal action side, and there's probably a ton of low-hanging fruit on the industrial side, um, from from both of yeah from both perspectives so I, I don't know okay, I feel like if there if there was low hanging fruit no I I think you're missing what I'm saying <laughs> if there was like so we shouldn't believe that there's low hanging fruit because we've known about this existential threat for 30 years and we've had you know not that great reduction in per capita emissions so if it was easy for these changes to happen. Why haven't they happened? The, what I'm saying is we – it's not as simple as just, you know, eating more lentils, riding <laughs> our bikes more, and then waiting for smart people to invent our ways out of this problem. We need massive change in how we live our life, which would be akin to, like – Governments taking control of energy systems, governments taking control uh, or, or, or mandating how cars are made, mandating, you know, destroying the coal industry worldwide. That's the level of government intervention and, and change we need. And you just have to look at how global politics are going to know how, how hard of an achievement that will be. Yeah, I mean, it, that paints almost a totalitarian picture, but when you think about it from, like, a human existential perspective, like, the the kind of, like, global spirit of humanity speaking out and saying, that's enough, and the arm of the influence of that spirit shining through in this kind of totalitarian 
regulatory scheme. And I don't mean totalitarian in a negative way here. I mean it in no, like but it, the it, necessary true. way. The amount of government control would have to be something that we're so uncomfortable with. Like we spend the better part of a century moving to less government control and more freedom and more individuals competing with each other. And we structured the the entire world around this idea of, of light regulation and, and the invisible hand of the market taking care of everything. And the invisible hand is not going to save us. So we have to completely redo the the way our economic systems work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so, I mean... I don't know that I agree that we have to go that far. I think it's in the numbers to decide whether that's where we have to draw the line. The other thing is that I, I think the thing that I brought up earlier about painting what that life looks like, like I can imagine what the life looks like where we make tremendous personal sacrifices, eating lentils and biking to work every day, you know, not using any airplanes and just making all those decisions personally, because I mean, it does work from the ground up, right? Like the consumer dictates what the companies create because you need a market for things. Obviously, you also have to go from the top down, like the government needs to make changes. So I'm painting a picture that I can imagine and that I can like I could draw like a mural for people and say, this is what your life would look like. And that's something that's marketable. Whereas I feel like you haven't drawn the mural yet for me of what it actually like looks like in terms of like an acceptable lifestyle for somebody who is in our position, which is necessary. I don't, I don't know exactly, but let's say that, let's say that an acceptable lifestyle would be being completely vegetarian. Yeah. um, Flying almost never. Moving very close to your work, getting rid of your car or buying an electric vehicle, yep. um, not not heating your house that much in the winter, so that so so that it stays, you know, uncomfortably cold throughout the winter. Let's yep. say that's what the lifestyle that's required, and I think that's that would be about the level of change that we're looking. Oh, and on top of that, on top of that. Every manufacturing operation um, would have to completely change their processes. So, so steel making would somehow have to get rid of the amount of carbon they use. And so all these industries would have to completely reinvest in, in their plants and, and change how they do every process. Yeah, it's so funny to see this from two perspectives because you're totally right. You know, like the bridges that we cross when we go to work the steel that goes into those is something that's totally removed in terms of process from any of the day-to-day decisions that we can make that are like within the influence of our immediate control. Mm. So yeah, I mean, there's this whole other world of niche of products of manufacturing. I feel like that side of it, you know, the, the funny thing is that it'll work from the top down too, right? Like if you regulate that too much or like, you know, you just, come in one day and you say totalitarian Ryan and Steven are yelling down your throats and yeah. you all have to change. And this is how we're going to do things now. Oh, by the way, you're going to have to cut your labor force in half because you can't afford them anymore because yada, yada, yada. I'm sure that there would be, you know, ramifications economically. And then suddenly you'd have a lot the of people only that way were... that happens is, 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 is with tremendous political violence, tremendous violence. There's no way the level of change needed. And, and we're talking 30 years. So we would have to turn America into China 
in 30 years. Yeah, okay, so you see, and this is where I don't think it's realistic at all. Like, I think you're overestimating how bad the problem is. Like, it's a bad problem, but I don't think it's so bad that America has to become China in terms of, like, like China 1980 average lifestyle, which is probably no, actually no, no, no. what it no, needs no, no. to be. No, 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 I'm saying China in terms of in terms of the amount of control the government has. Right, but then also China 1980 in terms of the average output for tons of carbon per person, right? Um. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be below where China today is in terms of. I mean, imagining what China was like in 1980. I'm not saying saying our life. It's a a different point because I I don't really know what our lifestyle is going to look like. It depends on how good technology is. But but I think I've I've made the point pretty well that the amount that our economic systems and, and government systems would have to change, that that's a fair statement. That America would have to turn into China politically economically within 30 years okay yeah i'll grant you that um yeah but i don't think that one is as big a concession as you think like i think that one is um like obviously politically a lot of shit would have to happen at the top level but for the way that like companies work and people's lives actually operate like you still have to allow those decisions to flow down it's like you're setting up well okay let's let's make it even harder it would america would have to be in china like would have to have the level of government control that china has but would have to do it where quality of life decreases every year like it's easy for for the chinese government to retain control when they're having massive gdp growth year over year which is correlated to increases in their co2 uh co2 emissions um but but america would have to transform into a state that looks like china while everyone's getting poorer so you would, it would, people would have to be willing, willing to cede – people and governments would have to be willing to cede power to governments without government promising them that life is going to get harder and that they're going to be poorer than before, which is the, the reverse of what China did, which is like you keep us in power because we make life better for you. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I think the crux of our argument at this level, and I don't think we've even gotten to the – like. Yeah, anyway, the crux of the argument at this level is going to be the unmarketability, and I think that's crucially important because if it's super unmarketable, that means that the only way to enforce it is through power and violence and Mm -hmm. the the kind of things that we don't want, the kind of things that, like, the whole point of us reducing the impact of global climate change on the geopolitical scene is to reduce violence and to reduce suffering. It would be ironic if we did that up front. no, 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 no. It's not so, to reduce violence and reduce suffering. It's to it's to make sure that we don't destroy the planet right. for I, countless okay. generations. To so then, then axiomatically, we ha- we have to define here whether global climate change um, actually has the ability to um, make the human species go extinct, make the human species um, stop thriving at any level, like even let's say Egyptian, you know, two thousand years ago type level versus technologically thriving into totally new domains with, like, AI at the forefront kind of levels, right? Like, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. Um, So let's start with extinction. Do you feel like there is any scenario where we put literally all the natural gas in the Earth's crust and all of the coal in the Earth's crust into atmospheric CO2, does the human race go extinct? Eventually, yeah. Yeah. Or it, it, it becomes so decivilized 
that it doesn't look anything like the humanity we have today, and it's actually on track to just get worse and worse. And what I think, why I think that is, if you, if, if global warming's happening, if runaway global warming is happening, life is becoming harder. When life is becoming harder, you have to change your environment more to make it habitable and comfortable. Changing your environment inevitably requires expending energy, and without drastic change, that energy will come from fossil fuels. Because even if we make a bunch of new technology, fossil fuels will be the cheapest, most abundant, most energy-dense form of energy. Yeah, And definitely. so I could imagine a future where we don't get a good handle on climate change, and then as things are getting worse and worse, instead of those worsening conditions inspiring some global government where everyone agrees to work together on solving this problem, instead it devolves through this through kind of like the inevitabilities of game theory where any any single country that chooses to defect from this global alliance does better for its citizens, Th that that pressure will cause every 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 state to act for themselves and just kind of create this like this arms race of of trying to make life better for their citizens despite making life better for their citizens leading to increased warming and then you could have this runaway effect where people are just irresponsibly expending more energy to make life more comfortable for them and and it sets the earth past a tipping point and and you know i don't think anyone really knows if we got to like three degrees um if we if we got to three degrees what that would do um or four degrees or five degrees but like the oh hey you can take a break. It's okay. I can edit this out. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting another call. Okay. Um, you can take it if you want. Yeah. No. Let Let's keep going. I can do it on Messenger. I don't. I'm. I'm not this popular. I don't know why. I don't <laughs> normally have friends. I. I, <laughs> I did tell a bunch of people to call me in the middle of the podcast. I mean, it just seem like I'm popular. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I think it's working. So, so anyways, I mean, I, maybe maybe next like, time just do it from your computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, we're at three degrees of global warming change. Yeah, like like we don't know how bad things are gonna get. Like, but it, it's chaos. This is like we're talking on par with the asteroids that destroyed the dinosaurs. So like, we should be really afraid. Okay. So um, the collapse of uh, Roman civilization uh, that was in a way the end of the peak, uh, like one peak of human civilization at its time and all of the positive feedback loops and chain reactions that are a consequence of the fall of power were happening and yet the world did not decline into nothingness. Like I, I think you're exaggerating maybe a little bit. I, I should just say I think you're totally exaggerating that it, you know, one negative thing happening, which is we totally shit the bed on doing anything on regulating our, uh, you know, CO2 levels is also going to mean that we're going to devolve. So I think of it this way. It's like a chess game that you're playing against somebody who is better than you, okay? And you've started the game, and you make a move that you think is good. They make a move they think is good. You make a move, and then you realize, shit, that was a mistake, and it was dumb, and I could have not made that. I'm behind now. Mm, can I bring myself back from this game knowing that they're better than me and I've made a mistake already? Um, so I, if it's if it's the case that human nature is that harder chess player, 
where not only could we not bring everybody politically to make changes when we were at peak uh, civilization, after that failed, all of the rest of the things that could fail were just going to fail too because we were the weaker chess player. If it turns out the scenario is that we're playing an equivalent chess player, then that's, you know, that's a gray zone. Okay. We're not sure. So Maybe my so analogy is getting a little bit far. <laughs> you know, I think I know what you're saying, which is basically like, okay, if this problem's so hard to solve and it's going to lead to this collapse of civilization, should we not then just be like creating something like Noah's Ark where, you know, this huge cataclysmic flood is going to happen and it's going to wash away the way we've been living and what we should be doing is creating this kind of like arc. And let's let's define what this arc is, but let's call it like a set of technologies, like a way that you could recolonize humanity on this climate change world in a way that we could quickly recover so that we're not stuck in the dark ages for millennia. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is I'm trying to critique you a little bit because I feel like you think human nature is hopeless and and like the the fact that you are so cynical about the potential for us to do lifestyle change, to do governmental policy change, and to just do, like, industry change required of us to meet this grand challenge is a hit to human nature itself. Like, human nature, it's just this, like, it, it's an incredible phenomena that popped out of the blue of the randomness of the Darwinian process on Earth, right? Like, there's no reason for us to think that it should be perfect in fact it could be very very flawed and i feel like at its core that's your position and that's part of why we're not going to be up to the task of of doing the right things for global climate change and one pillar falling is going to lead to another we've had things really good up until now because of coal and that's allowed us to to get to the lifestyles that we're at now but it's all downhill from here because not only do we have to get rid of those we've actually got to go in the other direction too it doesn't matter that we have new technologies. Those things are going to kind of crumble to the dust. We're not going to be able to bring those with us because, you know, systems will collapse underneath that are supporting the Internet, that's supporting the cloud, whatever, whatever. And um, so then, like, it's funny that just as global climate change has the potential to wipe out the human race, according to you, by the way, I think that's not the case, but going off of your own assumptions then it's funny that that should happen just as we're putting general AI out there. So in the same way that we put in uh, 1977 the Voyager spacecraft out with a summation of all of human history, you know, maybe 100 years later we put out another spacecraft. It's like the final thing that we say human nature wasn't good enough, but at least we have this. And it's some sort of self-sustaining module that houses a general intelligence AI that is the best of what we could imagine of humans without the parts that were our Achilles heel. So, yeah, so I, you're correct in identifying that I'm basically saying that my fear is, and I, I think the data back this, backs this up, that we're approaching what could be our last stop in evolution and that we are about to go the way of the dodo if we don't make massive, massive changes and it, it will be jarring and it will be, it will require a level of adaptation that, 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 that doesn't have a lot of analogs in, in human history, but will also have to happen quicker 
than 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 previous adaptations in humanity have happened. I'm not saying that's impossible. I don't know enough about how humanity is going to evolve to get there, but I just know that we're talking about a massive change and a massive adaptation or not. The humanity as we know it will go extinct. Gotcha. And I am not like I think you're comfortable with this, but like I think you're comfortable with the idea of humanity ending and then us basically ceding control, not ceding, but like ceding to position of the coolest thing in the universe to some to some, you know, new species that we create, which is general AI. But I'm not I'm not willing to do that. I'm not comfortable with um with 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 humanity ending. And for me that's 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 what we're talking about when it comes to climate change. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not comfortable with that either. Like I would rather be a part of that consciousness than not. Um, to be clear, I, I really was just trying to come to the conclusion of what I would imagine the train of thought would be going from your assumptions. Um, but yeah. so then I think you, it's, I mean, it's kind of incumbent on you because at this point I've pointed out a bit of a dichotomy in your thinking, which is that on the one hand, you think there are hopeless elements in human nature that has not allowed us to do the right things since 1980 and still right now. And and this this spirit that says, I don't want it to be something else that's holding the steering wheel. I do still think that there is a like you have a core reason to think human nature is the thing that ought to be there still. So, yes, I believe. I, I guess I'm a human chauvinist in that I like humans. <laughs> As a human, I want humans to continue They're not so to bad. exist. <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm not saying I hate humanity here, yeah, yeah. but I think I'm a realist about how, how scary this problem is and how much adaptation will be required. And I think that's my key point. It's not, I'm not trying to say all is hopeless, kiss your ass goodbye. What I'm trying to say is, like, I think people have been sold – false hope through this idea that technology will naturally save us and that we don't have to adapt fundamentally as a species. I'm saying this adaptation has to occur. It has to occur super quickly or else we, we, we could be in the twilight of humanity. And I want us to adapt quickly enough. I don't think we will adapt if we continue to believe the lie that technological improvement as is will get us there. Gotcha, gotcha. And I feel like for the sake of these conversations, like it's probably going to be impossible to say that the data goes one way or the other. It really is just like how has the facts of how have the facts of the world wafted over your consciousness to say, I feel like hopeful for this direction or hopeful for that direction. I mean, unless you feel like that's kind of a naive perspective. It's really just like I'm playing to my ignorance kind of thing and you know, I disagree with you because it's in, in my gut, <laughs> you know, like I, I do disagree with yeah, you, you and I'm not I, sure I that did, I can, I did make a, I did make, I did build up this argument pretty clearly about like the scope of change that's required. I think the only holes in my argument that I didn't convince you of is, is how cataclysmic climate change will be. Yeah. Um, but I think I did, I think I did paint you a really good picture of why it is that business as usual is not going to get us there and how we're pointed straight at an iceberg. You're not convinced yet that that, that iceberg is going to, like, is, is an existential threat, but a lot of people are. Like, the Union of Concerned Scientists 
are ranking climate change up there with nuclear holocaust. Like, you convince yourself, but, like, a lot of experts are calling this an existential threat. And I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think you should be a little more risk averse that if everyone's telling you this is an existential threat that is uh, going to destroy humanity, you know, we should try and listen to them or, or at least look into it more. Because if, if this is true and if everything else I said is true, then we are, uh, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I agree with you on the lots of work, and I I like the place emotionally where all this is coming from on your side. I, I I think you're right that our disagreement is in the details of the scope of how big a problem it is and just how much lifestyle will have to change and just how much industry will have to be impacted in the economy and the business as usual. And that it's ultimately the devil is in the details here because those details are what's important for us to say, okay, these technologies may be like 10, 20 years out are ones that could make a big difference. And we have to stop investing in technologies that have a 30, 40 year window because that's just too much investment right now for the amount of carbon footprint that that'll add to the problem. So it really is in the details about about where we draw the line and say, all right, that's enough. Time to draw back on our efforts to to bring it back in a technological way. Okay. So I think this is a good spot to end. Yep. I think I've made a case of why a good case of why business as usual, why technology as usual is not going to save us from 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 climate change. I think we should have a follow-up discussion centered around the topic of we are in the twilight of humanity because of climate change. And then I can try and convince you of the, the truth in that statement. And hopefully I can convince you of it or actually, no, hopefully you can convince me why I'm wrong. I much, I would prefer to be wrong. Okay. So I think, yeah, that'll take a study from both of us on, on the data a bit more so that we can become devils and get into those details. Okay. Well, this is a good one. I think so. I'm sorry for the background noise and the problems, but I feel like we're getting better at this. Yeah, no, this was way better than last time. It, it'll be easy to edit that out. Cool. Okay, okay. signing out, uh, <laughs> getting into the meta. Uh, these were two... Uh, oh, fuck, I can edit that. <laughs> Thanks for joining... Oh, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Stephen Ryan Yelling. Thanks for joining us this week on Stephen Ryan Yelling. We hope to catch you again. Thanks for joining us on Stephen Ryan Yelling. Hope to catch you again.